When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Oremus. And I'm April Glazer. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, March 6th. On today's show, we'll talk about advances in self-driving car technology, and for that matter, self-driving truck technology. We'll talk about Twitter rethinking its entire platform and what might be next for that social network. Later, we'll be joined by Cody Wilson. He'll be here in the studio in Berkeley, California. He's the person behind Ghost Gunner, which is a milling machine he designed for at-home gun making. Wilson is well known for designing and building a working 3D printed gun called the Liberator back in 2013. The plans were downloaded 100,000 times in two days before he had to take them down by request of the State Department. Wilson told me recently that after the tragic Parkland shooting, sales of his gun making milling machine and his gun building kits are booming. He'll join us to talk about his work. And as always, we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, our picks for the most interesting things we saw on the web this week. All right, Will, time for another episode. How's it going? I'm good. Thanks, April. Hanging in there myself. Um, this week, uh, I think we're going to start out talking about Twitter a bit. I have some questions on that for you. You wrote about it, um, you know, because Jack Dorsey, the CEO, he admitted that his company is a bit broken and he um, said some hard truths recently. He said that they didn't they haven't done well at addressing things like harassment or or bots. And these are two issues that have made some, you know, terrible headlines for the company over the past few years. Right. Like when racist trolls uh, bullied actress Leslie Jones, you know, off Twitter in 2016 or more recently, the company's bot infestation, you know, thousands of which appear to be puppeted by Russian propaganda operatives. Jack says he wants to fix this. He wants to fix Twitter. But first, he needs to understand the problems on the platform a bit better. I'm a bit confused about what he's actually proposing the next steps are for the company. Yeah. So I thought what was striking about this tweet storm from Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey was it evinced a depth of understanding of the problem that we haven't seen, in my view, from the heads of platforms like Facebook and Google. He basically said that it's fundamentally broken. And what they've been trying to do is sort of one by one or in batches to, to ban various offenders from their site, whether it's trolls or abusers or that sort of thing. But he said, basically, the real issue with Twitter is that it has gotten unhealthy. It's not a platform where people are engaging with each other in a healthy way anymore. We need to rethink it, maybe from the ground up in some ways. Right. And 
I guess one thing I'm, I'm seeing with this, he's saying, OK, we need to reassess. We need to rethink it from the ground up. He didn't lay out a real plan, though, right? He said that now they're going to be thinking about a real plan. And he just admitted that there are real problems. Is that the case? Yeah. I mean, you could look at this one of two ways. I mean, you could look at it as it's been all this time that we've known Twitter was broken in important ways. And they're just now realizing it's a problem and, and they don't really have a plan. That seems bad. On the other hand, I actually preferred the humility of this approach to what we often hear from Facebook, which is, okay, we finally admit that some things went wrong, for instance, maybe in the 2016 election with fake news or Russian trolls, and here are three product changes that are going to fix it. And we're going to do that right now. We're going to hire 5,000 people. Boom, done. Let's move on. That's not what Dorsey was saying here. Um, He did have some tentative ideas about what they could do. He talked about measuring the health of conversation with help from an outfit called Cortico. Cortico is an offshoot of the MIT Media Lab. This is a nonprofit group that has come up with four metrics or four dimensions along which one might try to measure the health of conversations. Those are shared attention, shared reality, variety of opinion, and receptivity. So in theory, Twitter will be trying to find ways to measure and optimize for those goals. That's a little bit different from just optimizing for engagement or the time that users spend on the platform, which are what social media companies are historically pursuing. April, what did you think of these of these goals? I mean, does that reflect to you what Twitter should be trying to accomplish? Sure. They seem broad enough. I I, I think that it's going to be hard to accomplish any of those goals, though, if Twitter doesn't, you know, articulate some base set of principles or some, you know, base, you know, morality or something that they're curbing off of. Because you can talk about, uh, you know, fixing problems all day. But if you don't know the starting point for what correct is, then I could see that being rather difficult or that they're going to keep getting in these kind of thorny messes. Yeah, it does seem like there's sort of an attempt to adopt what the journalism professor and critic Jay Rosen has called the view from nowhere, where, you know, if you say that you're optimizing for the health of conversations, well, there's no ideological content to that. There's no moral philosophy behind that. It sounds like something objective. But realistically, you're going to have to probably stand for something. I mean, you're going to have to to take a stand in terms of what values you want Twitter to promote if you're going to actually achieve something like that. I mean, whose definition of health, right? I mean, that's the thing with a lot of this, you know, a lot of these decisions on policing these platforms seem like they're made somewhat arbitrarily or at least inconsistently. And uh, I think that they're going to continue to feel inconsistent and it's going to continue to feel like a hot mess unless they articulate some baseline values. So, yeah, I would say that the view from nowhere won't necessarily hold well in this case. I think that'll be a great starting point for them if they are able to articulate values first. All right, April. You've been following the developments on the self-driving car front, and we've had a couple of them recently. In late February, California announced that it will begin to allow some companies to test self-driving cars on public roads that do not have a human driver behind the wheel. They will instead have a remote operator 
who can take over the car from afar. That's a fascinating development. Meanwhile, this week, we learned from the New York Times that Uber's self-driving truck division, which is being called Uber Freight, has already been uh, on the roads in Arizona. It's been on the highways. These do have human drivers at the wheel. Long-haul trucking is seen as one of perhaps the earliest and best use cases for autonomous vehicle technology. It kind of seems like this future in which cars drive themselves is almost at hand, but are we really ready for that? I mean, is this technology really safe enough to be moving forward at this pace? I think it's a 2,000-piece puzzle, and there are hundreds of pieces scattered around still missing. So uh, it's not something that's going to happen next month. Uh, it's not so- Well, it is going to happen next month in terms of, you know, in April, uh, Uber or, or, you know, car companies will be allowed to operate self-driving cars in California without a human behind the wheel. So certainly it is happening quickly, but, you know, it's not something that uh, that I would expect to revolutionize something like trucking, you know, right off the bat this year. But in Arizona, as we learned earlier this week, Uber has been testing its self-driving truck technology on the highways for a few months now. Now, those trucks do have a person behind the wheel in the cab, even if they're not technically driving it, if the, if the truck is driving itself. That person can take over if something goes wrong. And there's going to be a person, you know, in the cab of these self-driving trucks, you know, even when they are more widespread used for a very long time. And that's because the roads aren't ready. It's because these are massive, monstrous machines, 18 wheelers that we don't want to be operating in any kind of unbridled way by any means, even if there is a remote operator available, you know, having somebody there that can quickly put their hands on the wheel and also, um, get off the interstate and navigate a truck stop or navigate, you know, uh, driving through a city or whatever they have to do to get to their end location. You know, there's been a lot of talk that self-driving trucks are going to come before self-driving cars. There's still going to be a person behind the wheel. They're not going to be this huge job killer, because if you think of the way truck driving works now, there's a person behind the wheel. There'll still be a person in that cab to take over. They might be doing other things with their hands, like data entry or or whatever they might do in their free time in the cab since their hands aren't on the wheel. But uh, but there'll still be somebody there employed in the truck. Um, when it comes to self-driving cars, however... Uh, those will be deployed without a person there much sooner. Yeah, I have to say, it it feels a little rushed to me. It feels a little misguided. Um, We've already heard of incidents in which these self-driving cars, even with a person behind the wheel, have erred in various ways. It seems like there are still a lot of these so-called edge cases where the self-driving software, as as smart as it may be, has not encountered a particular situation before, even over millions of simulations, and it does the wrong thing in that situation. There was the really famous example of the Tesla where the driver put it on autopilot and it plowed right into a truck that was crossing the street because the computer vision system mistook the the side of this white semi-trailer for a highway sign in bright sunlight. So I just it feels a little too fast for me, but I did find something really interesting about this proposal to allow remote operators of self-driving vehicles. And long term, I think I think it might be plausible. There's a company called Phantom Auto whose idea is that they will have like people at banks of computers monitoring five self-driving cars at a time. And whenever one is in peril or is in a sort of crisis, that person will be able to take over remotely and intervene somehow. It's kind of, I mean, that seems a little scary and dystopian, but maybe that is where this is all headed. The thing with, with 
having these cars on the road, particularly without somebody there that can grab the wheel, is that there's just not testing that's been done to know that it's safe. I mean, cars, as as my father said, when I was learning to drive when I was 15, are death boxes, right? <laughs> these are these these kill people and they kill a lot of people. And, you know, sure, you know, people who are driving cars are often responsible for those deaths. We just don't know if uh, if you know, not having a person behind the wheel is ultimately going to be safer yet. That's an assumption at this point. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see what level of uh, error we're willing to accept from software. Obviously, the one thing that's working in the favor of all these projects is the fact that humans have not done such a bang-up job of driving uh, ourselves. And so there's a relatively low baseline that the software has to eclipse. But uh, it's certainly fascinating to watch it evolve, and it's evolving more rapidly than, than I or I think most people expected at this point. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll have our interview with Cody Wilson. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. So before we start the interview with Cody Wilson, we wanted to let our listeners know we're going to be discussing some sensitive topics, including the right to gun ownership in the wake of the Parkland school shooting. As with all of our guests, his views are not necessarily our views. We decided it's important to talk to Cody because he's an influential figure who's helping to shape the future of gun rights and policy. Our guest today is Cody Wilson. He's joining me here in the studio in Berkeley, California. Cody is a gun rights activist and the founder and director of Defense Distributed, an organization that advocates for gun rights and for distributing information on the digital manufacture of arms. He created the world's first 3D printed gun in 2013. He gave out his plans for printing this gun for free before the U.S. State Department demanded he take it down. He's also the co-founder of Dark Wallet, a privacy-centric Bitcoin storage software system. In 2015, Wired named him one of the five most dangerous people on the Internet. These days, he's running a business, GhostGunner.net, where he sells a milling machine he designed for at-home gun making as well as unfinished gun making kits. Cody, welcome to If Then. Thank you. So you're best known for releasing the design for a working 3D printed gun a few years ago. What problem were you trying to solve with that? Uh, you could say I was trying to solve the problem of gun control in general. Uh, we were redescribing like a cultural moment other, that I was otherwise being assumed to have been completed. Like uh, I think the whole background for this event was like Sandy Hook, the Sandy Hook school massacre had happened. Mm. And people were discussing a, like a Senate bill for gun control at the time. And our demonstration was, well, look, I mean, the, the future probably means downloadable guns, and that explodes any kind of perfect regime of gun control. So you saw gun control as a problem that you needed to circumvent. 
yeah, I mean, to, to say it that way, if, if it's what problem are you trying to solve, we came at it very hard. We were saying, look, uh, gun control is now a fantasy. And in fact, those were the words used in the first time like the media kind of descended upon us. And uh, we had a Vice documentary out at the time and mm -hmm. stuff. And that's, that's how we put it. It's more unrealistic now to think that you could go back to the days of the 1994 assault weapons ban, um, prevent the AR-15 from, you know, kind of flourishing. Now I've got, you know, a tiny device that we sell. And, you know, uh, just they just arrested one of my customers here in California. He had made 15 AR-15s for himself. So let's talk about that. You're kind of in the gun-making business or industry yeah. of uh, not that you're making guns, but helping people have what they need in order to make yeah. guns. Um, what is it that you're designed or that you've designed now that's for sale? And, and I want to hear a bit more about your customer that, that's recently arrested. So there's a difference between like um, buying and selling guns and then making guns. And then just historically, it's been assumed or it's not even been considered because making guns is, is part of like a deep industrial, you know, legacy operation. You, we don't assume that people acquire a lot of capital to be able to make guns for themselves. It seems like a very, you know, military industrial type thing. Mm -hmm. It's military contractors and, and advanced manufacturing and stuff. But with the digital revolution, the, the fallen price of uh, microcontrollers, little computers, little stepper motors and things, um, everything's been miniaturized uh, and made so much cheaper that now you can you can literally create the military grade stuff from miniature components and, and microcontrollers in your own home affordably at a at an order of magnitude less in terms of cost than you could have even 15 years ago. Right, and so the accessibility of, of making things at home, things that used to kind of be relegated to a factory setting has expanded. Uh, what are you making now though? Well, I make a tiny machine, a miniature CNC machine. CNC is like computer numeric control milling. It's like a post-war technology. It's been around a long mm -hmm. time, old, old language. It's a milling machine. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. G-code is the code. It's been a long, a long time. But we've made it so, such a tight, small package, so affordable. It's like less than $2,000 that the American rifleman or like the, the aged boomer uh, can consider both purchasing it and learning to use it. Uh, you don't have to go to school for it, you know what I mean? And you don't have to take out a loan. So Cody, you are in a sense then democratizing the ability to make and own guns, uh, circumventing possible attempts at gun control. Why is that a good thing? Why is it? Why do you believe in everybody being able to have a gun regardless of what the government might decide or the American people might decide uh, should be reasonable regulations on gun ownership. Yeah, uh, I did used to use the word like democratize because that was, we kind of bubbled out of the maker movement. That was a, a popular word of theirs. Now I, I'm suspicious of it. I, I don't see it as democratization uh, because just as you pointed out, an open society concepts and stuff don't apply here. This is, you know, irrevocable um, political, I don't know, like, conclusion like this is this is stuff that can't be taken back it's irreversible i believe in it both because i'm like a, a romantic uh, for the political itself I, I believe that anyone should be able to have this type of capacity like this uh this customer that got arrested in california mm. it's very very powerful literally powerful that he was able to to create 15 ar-15s for himself um even though he wasn't technically allowed to own one i know that this this creates like a this is a big problem. And then if the question is, what's the moral good of it? Well, uh, I don't answer it that way. I don't, I don't see it as explicitly uh, good or bad from a, a moral point of view. It's, it's beyond good and evil, surely. Uh, but I do believe deeply in the ability for people to amass this type of power for themselves, just for the post-liberal order to construct itself. Like something new has to happen. And this is a, a realistic element of that. Power 
is real and it comes from it comes from guns. What uh, what what happened with your customer in California? Was he not uh, supposed to own guns legally? He, as I understand it, uh, got busted for counterfeiting some years ago, and that was a you know that's a felony that disqualifies you from firearm ownership. But because California has an assault weapons registry of some kind, you have to in the past anyway. You could you could maintain your AR-15s. You just had to register them with the state of California. I think he had four on this on this registry, and so they came for. They came to his home to get those guns because he had been busted for counterfeiting. Well, when they got there, they didn't discover four. They discovered, you know, like 11 more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, he was because he was a customer of, of ours. Right. And so basically you don't have to have a uh, passive background check. You don't have to uh, go through any sort of training or, or, or get or record the uh, the buying of these kits. Right. right? They're, right. they're just it's a very um, it's a undocumented process no it's it's yeah there's certainly no oversight now to some degree like like we don't check for oh i don't know what do we what do we not check for yeah your typical stuff in a nix check like um you know are you a fugitive from justice or you know have you been a judge mentally defective like we don't we don't ask those things just because you don't ask those things when someone buys like a you know a, a saw at home depot or something or an axe at you know walmart um but we do actually have to check some things related to the itar but maybe that's a separate discussion You obviously believe strongly in an individual right to bear arms. Is there, are there any limits that you see to that? I mean, should people be able to make a bomb at their house? Uh, Should people be able to create weapons of mass destruction in their home? Is there, I mean, is there a point at which the risk to society outweighs the value of uh, people's individual unfettered rights? Yeah, uh, there's a good, there's a good faith answer that I can give here, like, um, I do think it can it can be up to communities to limit people to make certain things. Um, like I do think it's unacceptable that someone might engage in you know like building a I don't know some type of tritium you know dirty bomb or something in there. And if you knew about this, I think you could have a, a judge and you know the common law should afford you to be able to prevent this from happening. Fortunately, in the United States, we have like the Atomic Energy Act and and other things that from birth prevent certain technologies from being uh, let's say exploited by the common man. I just see like uh, the history of like American rifle ownership, for example. I mean, that's just such a strong Anglo-American. And I know we're not allowed to say that anymore either, but it's such a strong traditional element of like Republican thought and, and American thought, revolutionary American thought. Um, I'm I'm so confident in it that no, I, I won't actually assign any limits at all. Um, that's But that's me. So even if people are, are mentally unstable, you think? Well, you see, I see it as a part of... It doesn't justify ex parte decision making on the part of judges, and it doesn't justify a wholesale prohibition of entire classes of people and ownership. And but I, of course, I, I believe that like uh, if you can get a, in front of a judge and say, look, you know, your honor, he's a danger to himself and others, or you know, he's been uh, judgmentally defective, he's been assigned to a sanitarium, or he's beat his wife or something. I, I think there should be all kinds of procedures and uh, for that, of course. But I I really am. I don't know if the word is extremist on the probably in this context, sure, but. Uh, no, no. Any type of military-grade hardware, I believe. I mean, this is the kind of extreme and terrifying element of neo-Republican thought. I mean, the idea really was to locate military-grade hardware in the in the hands of the people and the, the freeholders themselves. That seems extreme and, and ludicrous now. And it probably is by the way that we live. Um, but I'd like to live another way. So that kind of brings me to – you're a self-described crypto-anarchist. Um, and, you know, you did mention that you could see some – point where there are communities that uh, that create kind of their own rules um, about 
you know, guns in, in, in kind of a smaller, like less big government setting. I'm trying to kind of understand what do you mean by crypto anarchist? Where does the crypto come in? Where does the anarchy <laughs> come in? What does the internet have to do with guns? <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, well, Timothy May wrote the Crypto Anarchist Manifesto in the late 80s, and I, this, was, this was all about strong public key cryptography, you know, like uh, encryption, mm-hmm. um, would allow the internet basically to lock out and create. Um, it's kind of like internet utopianism of, of the West Coast variety, but that this would, this would create libertarian possibilities, at least in the virtual sphere, that weren't afforded in, in, in real life or in meat space. Uh, and he predicted things in this essay, like WikiLeaks, like Bitcoin, mm-hmm. you know, that basically like strong, strong cryptography would create all the tools for a kind of uh, the global anarch, if you will. The guy who at least if he if he isn't going to destroy the government uh, can completely opt out, you know. So I I use this phrase. A lot of Bitcoin people invoke this this term now. It's kind of a common term now, and at least mm-hmm. in the Bitcoin world. I only mean it to, to locate myself there in this kind of strain of, I don't know, internet utopian anarchist thought but it's not really like a, a 19th century anarchism it's not really like a throwing bombs in a cafes and stuff no no it's 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 more has to do with uh pri- like privacy focused or or being um there's a lot of overlap to circumvent here. government yeah, uh, yeah. regulations pa- parallel power and and then i guess if your question is what does the internet have to do with it uh my only addition i'm not, I'm not even sure it's my addition uh all i ever did was when i was in law school i was like okay wikileaks I was in awe, you know, at Cablegate. And I was like, all right, what does WikiLeaks mean for guns? And bam, that's my idea. That's the only idea I've ever had. In a sense, it's the only idea I probably ever will have. And it's just variations on this idea over and over again. So in the same way WikiLeaks was trying to free information, put it all online, you wanted to do something like a a corollary for that vote for guns. Yeah, like what is a... uh, Think about all this. So the United States, right? Like we've developed all this technology and technical data related to armaments and uh and defense technology technically it's all the public's and the only reason like no one's freaking out about it is most of it hasn't been made available to the public but um it will be <laughs> and of course there's what you can make yourself because it's never been easier so there's just so much to do and my head is clouded with it and uh but yeah permissive software licenses applied to guns and then and then strong visible culture visible like in the pirate base sense like you will be downloading guns and that was just like the strongest idea i had ever had and a lot of people took to that when you put the plan online uh, in the first two days, over 100,000 mm. downloads. And I should even give it like greater context. You know, Liberator, posting Liberator wasn't like our first. Liberator was the 3D gun uh-huh. design. It wasn't like our first thing. For about six months, we had had a big gun file sharing website. This very, very quickly became one of the top three or 4,000 websites in the world. There were about 60 or 70 different artifacts there and different like gun files and things. Millions of downloads. I understand why the State Department acted the way that they did. I just think that this is the way it is now. You go to grabcad.com right now. I mean, right now, there's like 17,000 different guns and gun components in there for CAD. And that's just one website, you know? I mean, this is... The State Department asked you to take it down. After it was taken down, it popped up elsewhere? Sure, sure. I mean, in a a sense, it was like the Streisand effect. It made Liberator uh, popular. I mean, people actually wanted it at that point. Like uh, a lot of people thought it was, and they were right, that it was just some kind of novelty. Um, you know, like, why would I care that there's a 3D printable gun? Well, when the government says you can't have it, now I really care about it. And of course, we've seen the thing pop up all over the world. Um, printed in Japan, printed in Australia, printed in uh, Sweden most recently. And all these people have gone to jail. I mean, that's very interesting. And of course, our reach was always a global, our intentions were always global as well. It isn't just, well, what if the American people decide that, you know, they don't want X and Y guns? I mean, the the real 
kind of anarchist possibilities here where that like there are many states all over the world that are gun control states and it doesn't matter. You said that your original idea came after Sandy Hook and that seems to indicate to me that Sandy Hook raised concerns for you that you know massive gun control legislation would follow. Is is that what do you, is that your first thought when you hear about something like the Parkland shooting? Uh, I, I noticed uh, April wrote a piece where she talked to you recently, where you said your gun sales have actually gone up significantly since yeah, Parkland. They do. What what is the thought process? What goes through your head when you hear about another school shooting? I should back up though. No, we we were acting before Sandy Hook. Sandy Hook made us like important as an organization or something in in the American gun owning public's mind. Uh, to your question, like uh, they didn't care until Sandy Hook could happen. Because things like Sandy Hook make them, uh, you know, the, there's this whole fear factory thing that happens. The NRA gets going and the gun sales go up. And, and it applies to us too. Ever since we've done Ghost Gunner, uh, every, every shooting, the Orlando shooting, to a lesser extent, the Vegas shooting and this one, yeah, they drive, they drive sales, they drive interest. There's people who've never even considered owning guns before. I think this was like in your piece. You know, they'll call us up and be like, oh, what do I got to know? What do I have to do? It's vicious. Every, everybody seems tied in together to these media moments. I mean, everybody benefits as well um it's perverse but i guess it's all explainable economically now i don't know if that was really answering your question though you were saying well my question is so so your business actually benefits but do you does that affect how you view something like the parkland massacre oh, yeah, what, yeah, what yeah. goes through your head when something like that Un- happens? unavoidably right because i live in this kind of surreal plane now where like my incentives move retrograde to yeah to, to like, violence human events yeah um you know, like I know gun owners or, or gun shop owners in Austin, for example. I mean, they wanted Hillary Clinton to win, for example. I mean, they really did. Um, I know a lot of gun people that wanted Hillary to win for this reason. And that doesn't make sense. All your incentives are totally distorted. I dislike that, but it's true. Like to your to your question, yes, the shootings are received from me. Like the way I, the way I see it in Twitter. I mean, look, you, you see like people were immediately bullying the survivors of this school shooting on Twitter as what like crisis actors and all this stuff. i mean that everybody immediately is we've just been like uh, conditioned uh, to retaliate according to our various you know weird interests when, when any type of media event occurs uh, i have my own conditioning as well i don't believe i respond in a, a fully human and authentic way at this point because everything is received as you know these automatic uh media events so you're saying people are just responding to media events with their preconceived politics well, what am I going to do? The first thing I hear, Parkland. I mean, this is the question he's asking. Yeah. As soon as I hear that, I go, well, was it an AR-15? Okay. Are they tracing the gun? Uh, because that affects my business, right? Like, is, is it was it a ghost gun or something? I have to know. I mean, it's, it really is something that occurs to me. Um, we look for the name. What's the name of the guy? We look and see if he's like a customer or something. I mean, look, we really care. And how would you feel? I mean, how, how would it make you feel personally if it turned out that one of your guns was used in an incident like this. Would it make you question your? Would it make you question your project? I hope so. I think so, but I hope that I have the maturity and the, I don't know, the consistency of conviction to to know that I really have accepted that that might happen. I, I still am comforted by the evidence that this would that would be an extreme statistical outlier that that someone would do it. But at scale, with enough time and opportunity, yeah, it's 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 a likelihood. I understand that. I hope that I can accept that if if that happens. So what's what is the ideal then for everybody to be armed? And you know, you said that you you want this tech, you know, you want guns to be available and and to um to be available despite regulations attempting to make them unavailable. Uh would it would it be better if everyone had guns? Uh, in your view? No, I mean I I don't think so. And I think 
you know, most educated white urbanites don't need them, don't want them, and then they're probably right to not need them and want them. Still, I, I feel a kind of fidelity to like, um, it's it's political romanticism for me to some degree, but there's a, a certain tradition here. And then when I see like people attack the AR-15 and like in the press, that's not them attacking the AR-15. To me, I interpret that as a, a, them attacking a way of life, a certain type of identity, a certain idea of being. And the only thing that prevents me from just like uh, absolute panic and, and total boredom is the idea that there could be something else and different ways of being outside of neoliberal global order. <laughs> uh, I have to think that there's possibility. And to me, it's, it's inextricably related to the, the materiality of the gun, okay? Like you have to be able to possess this thing. Although look, I, I just had dinner last night with some people, some really rowdy people here in San Francisco, and they think the very best thing that could happen for the political would, would be for mass confiscations to happen. And for us to finally get past this fantasy, you know, this boomer fantasy, like, oh, don't mess with us. We got our guns. We'll overthrow the government. They won't. They don't have the metal. They don't have the nerve. And perhaps it would be, we could finally proceed to something else uh, if these guns were, were removed from uh, popular possession. You've mentioned a couple times now that you see gun ownership and gun culture as tied to uh, Anglo-Saxon or Anglo-American traditions. Yeah. What's that? What's that connection for you? And and you know, what do you say to people uh, who who think that that's not a valid reason? You know that 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 that's not a valid reason to continue allowing gun ownership if it's having destructive oh, effects on I, society. I would if if it was successfully portrayed this way in the public, it would be ended even faster. So I agree with you. And democratically, it's definitely not a good reason. It's a reason to end it. I'm sure. But um, it, it's only only historical reason which which leads me to this this conclusion or this like location of the tradition. I mean, it just everyone everyone wonders. Well, how the hell did the Second Amendment even happen? You know, I mean, it's it's almost unique in the history of of constitutional documents and stuff. I think only like the German modern German Constitution has even anything close. And then of course, there's there's what Sweden has. This is just it's always been this bizarre almost kind of terrifying thing, which is just an artifact of the, the internal order of the, you know, the common law Anglo mind. Uh, it's, this, it's this strange thing, but I, I've been completely radicalized by it. I, I find it completely unique, totally captivating, and the element of something. I don't know, like a, I guess a kind of arch individualism. It may be that, yeah. I think it's worth preserving and maintaining and then like taking the DNA of these things, putting it in the internet. And even if, if we as a, as a country or a people fail to maintain it, uh, it'll be there in the future for another people in another time. Um, that's comforting to me. So decentralizing kind of the the knowledge that goes into making guns is something that you've you've done for sure, or at least you know help to distribute <laughs> the information around it. Um, that's going around the big gun business. Um, I've also uh, read that you yeah. are kind of against big monopoly power in general, but you're also against uh, government power, and governments are usually the ones to regulate companies. I'm curious how you would square that. You know, how can you be both against government power and corporate power at the same time? Well, gosh, I I think it's easier than ever to understand that stuff. We all hate. Well, no, I I'm, I shouldn't speak for you, but I mean. Um, to understand that Google is a proxy engine for the satisfaction of American foreign policy, you know, concerns. Uh, all of Assange's writing on this is really good. Um, you know, Facebook, I, I, we're all suspicious of how everybody's harvesting our data, the quantifiable self and all this stuff. I mean, honestly, like the, the government begins to look like this decrepit kind of older, dumber form. And then uh, I'm much more suspicious of what these large companies are doing. 
uh, with our data and their intentions to regulate our life and our speech. Most recently, you know, the way that people just get non-personed on YouTube or deplatform mm-hmm. from any type of uh, the banking system. I mean, uh, any of these payment systems. Um, I find it harder to exist among these these individually governed like Silicon Valley companies to stay on the internet than than I find it to interact with like the ATF, for example. Oh, so so you feel kind of more oppressed by the power of these largely unregulated mm. tech companies mm-hmm. than by the regulators. At that, just a at fact. the moment, just a yes. fact. I don't want them regulated, but you know this whole canard about like, well, they're private companies; they can do what they want. Well, funny that they all agree with you know the global liberal consensus, and they all want to do the same thing. And in fact, this is the kind of response we saw after Parkland as well. We've seen it before, but the old adbuster stuff doesn't even make any sense now because like now corporations are the moral conscience of America mm-hmm. and we're all happy about that. Mm-hmm. Well, this is mystifying to me and totally bizarre. You know, people were cheering uh, when YouTube was going to kick off Alex Jones or something. Uh, what? Like that makes no sense to me. That has no, no connection to our civic purpose or something or our, our, our proposed civic identity. There was an interesting moment because people who were against what Alex Jones were saying were saying it's good that he's getting kicked off. And people who were for what Alex Jones were saying were also cheering YouTube, kicking them off so that way they could make a point about being censored. Yeah, I guess. But l- that chorus is lesser, that secondary chorus. There. Perhaps. I mean, there is no YouTube killer. You know, I, these are enterprise class. I, I, there's not a viable competitor yeah. to YouTube. So when you get kicked off YouTube, there's not really a place to go where you can distribute video with the same or, or force. Google. Just just like it's so obvious that like there's been the construction of a digital social visa of sorts. Like it's not enough to just be like, well, I'll go to the alternative Twitter and I'll go to the alternative Google. And no, that you're you don't exist in the same way that uh, that your friends or your contemporaries exist. But isn't it within the free speech rights of these companies to kick people off? Absolutely, right? Without question. But if the question is, well, what what power structure do you worry about more? I worry, right. I, I worry about I worry about Google deeply. I worry about Elon Musk. I worry about all these guys. Do you associate with the alt right as uh, this kind of this kind of newer form of grouping that, or not newer, but this grouping that's kind of come into prominence uh, uh, post Trump uh, for you know I, organizing on the internet and, and organizing hate speech events? I know many of them. Yeah, but they've kind of fallen. They've they've shattered and broken up, and some of it's been attempted recompositions of neo reaction, which started out here in the Bay Area and. I think the alt right's over now, really, but there have there have been some things to have come out of it that were interesting. Nothing great. You you end up learning the same. I think it's like every generation has to learn for itself, like uh, what the right wing and the left wing is. And poor white nationalists, like they never really get poor white nationalists. <laughs> yeah, they never. Wow. It's it's pretty sad. Like they never really get what they're supposed to be. White nationalism is the most hated politics, anyway. So if you're just if you're just going to socially destroy yourself, fine. Okay, go ahead and sign up, but. The alt-right fantasy is, well, we'll use the tools of the communists to defeat the, you know, it's, it doesn't work. Or like, oh, we'll, we'll recreate a fascist party like in Italy or something and, uh, and we'll slowly retake the administrative state. Well, I mean, Jesus, that's a fantasy. It's, it's so far from even possible um, that it's a distraction and it, it takes away from vital energies toward other efforts. So you are concerned about, uh, about these platforms kind of cracking down on speech? On, only in a very... Like a a long term type of sense. If I can't keep, you know, some of these people on the internet, if we can't tolerate these people on the internet, what what chance am I going to have when it's time for me to host my gun files again? Right? And you'll all be right to like petition YouTube and Google, and like get this shit off of here. Right? This is dangerous. Um, problem is, you know, it's it's my speech. I generated. I should be able to share it. And uh, lastly, what are you working on now? I mean, is it mostly building the milling machine business and uh, selling the unfinished kits, or uh, you know, what's 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 next for you? Oh man, um, I hide, I mean, I hide some things. You know, I've been in a multi-year lawsuit with the State Department. 
around the files that you posted for the yeah, liberator. Yeah. So I've, I've been doing tons of file sharing work behind the scenes and stuff. And now it's even in the briefings. The judges are like, look, they say they're going to, they say they're going to share a lot of files if they win. So they shouldn't win. Uh, I've got a lot of, I've got a big digital game that I'd like to, I'd like to demonstrate, but um, I have to wait. That's down the pike. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us, Cody. Yeah. Pleasure. All right, we're going to take a short break and then don't close my tabs. Some of the most interesting things we've seen on the web this week. It's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. Will, what tab could you not close this week? My tab comes from the New York Times and tech writer Kevin Roos. The headline is, Here Come the Fake Videos too." This is about a technology called deepfakes. It uses machine learning technology to superimpose one person's face on another person's body in a video. So you can make it look like somebody's doing something that they never actually did. Of course, one of the earliest uses for this that we heard about was for porn, that people could be made to look like they were in nude videos or sex videos that they had not actually participated in. There's also the issue of fake news and misleading people by making it look like somebody did something or said something that they never actually did or said. There are a lot of things that could go wrong here. What Kevin Roos did that was new was he actually tried it out. He worked with a couple experts to make some of these fakes himself. So he superimposed his own face on celebrities like Jimmy Kimmel, Chris Pratt, Ryan Gosling. I will say the results were not ultra convincing. Uh, What he found out in terms of the difficulty of making these was, quote, making a deep fake isn't simple, but it's not rocket science either. He was able to do it overnight in some cases. Right. And, you know, a a lot to think about here. I mean... You write about the future of news or at least our current consumption of news a lot. It seems like these videos where you can make it look like somebody is doing or saying something that they're not doing or saying in real life, but it appears that they are, um, has just major consequence for the future, for for for, you know, what we can trust. Right. Yeah. You can certainly imagine a future in which it becomes harder than ever to figure out what's true and what's fake online. Right now, videos are one of the last media that we have that are not easy to manipulate. You know, if you have video of somebody doing something, they're caught, right? They're caught red-handed. Well, that may not be true anymore in the future. That's definitely scary. I'm not totally pessimistic about this. I mean, I I can imagine companies coming out with machine learning technology to counter this. You know, it, it shouldn't be that hard, I would imagine, to train software to recognize when a video has been manipulated. But then, of course, there's a whole the whole other matter of how do you convey that to people? How do you quickly debunk it before it goes viral and ruins somebody's reputation? It's certainly a, a brave and scary new world here. All right, April, but what was your pick for the tab this week? 
So my tab this week was about Sam Nunberg, who had a meltdown across all of national television on Monday. Uh, He is a former Trump aide uh, on the presidential campaign, and he was upset because special counsel Robert Mueller issued a grand jury summons for him, as well as a subpoena for his email account uh, about uh, Mueller's ongoing investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. Um, And... Uh, Numberg refused to comply with uh, the request, and even if that means he's going to be put in jail. And the reason why this is a tech tab or a story on our tech show is because he said one of his motivations for doing this is that he doesn't want to have to uh, sludge through 80 hours of, uh, or rather he doesn't want to spend 80 hours kind of going through his emails and sorting his emails to provide the investigative team, uh, you know, with copies of conversations that he had um, between Roger Stone, who was a infamous Republican operative, and uh, Steve Bannon, uh, who was, uh, you know, former White House chief of staff. Yes. I mean, Nunberg, just watching him on TV yesterday, sort of melting down gradually in public appearance by appearance, he did not come across as a well person. Uh, and I, you know, you have to wonder about what his yeah. what his mental and psychological state is right now. That said, I do think the unwillingness to go through all of his emails is probably something that a lot of us can relate to. Yeah, I, it's something that I would take the time to do if it meant going to jail. Uh, we have a, a, a clip of him, uh, one of the many clips, however, of him saying that uh, his reason for not complying is going through his emails. Let's just let him speak for himself. Air up that subpoena and refuse to cooperate and and. Uh... We want to hear uh, you your side of it. Do you think I should cooperate with you? Should I spend 80 hours going over my emails, Jake? If it were me, I would. I mean, if you're just asking my opinion, just because it sounds like a pain, but he is the special counsel and he does have the, the long arm of the law. why do I have to produce every email? I talk to Steve Bannon and Roger Stone eight times a day. Do you know what I mean? Why do I have to go over it? Why do I have to produce sometimes, every email? Sometimes life and special prosecutors are not fair, I guess. I would... I would cooperate were it me. But, you know, I'm a different breed of cat. So that was Nunberg speaking with Jake Tapper of CNN. But, yeah, that was my tab because I just was shocked that anybody would um, say no to uh, to, to Mueller. Um, and also his rationale just seemed completely out of touch, but also relatable, as you said. So <laughs> definitely uh, something that I stewed on th- throughout the day on Monday. Yeah, I liked, I liked Tapper's deadpan response. You know, yeah, yeah, I probably would go through all those emails, but then I'm a different breed of cat. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I guess that's our show for today. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. You can follow me and April on Twitter as well. I'm at Will Remus, and April is at April Laser. Thanks again to our guest, Cody Wilson. And if you like the show, help us spread the word. We'd really appreciate it if you left us a comment or a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. Thanks so much for listening to. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Adam Munoz at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. Thanks to Don Aulis at A Room with a VU in Santa Barbara. And we'll see y'all next week. Bye.